This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The story is told that when a great Indian guru was asked by one of his disciples, Master, how should we treat others? The guru replied, there are no others. As with uh, many such pronouncements, one is inclined to ask, are there any intermediate steps? For as much as we might uh, admire or be even swept away by the vision of there are no others, that's not something we can practice with. It's either a uh, realization that you have or you don't. And if you don't, what are you supposed to do? Uh, you can be devoted in your sitting trying to bring about that realization, but in the meantime, how should you treat others? At a psychological level, sometimes we think that empathy is the intermediate step, but that's often misunderstood. Very commonly, people assume that empathy means feeling or trying to feel what the other person feels. It's a kind of exercise at the psychological level in oneness of finding some way to enter into the feeling state of the other person, feel happy when they're happy, sad when they're sad, so forth. But empathy, at least in the psychoanalytic tradition of uh, Heinz Kohut, meant something more specific and rather different. Rather than being based on an exercise in sameness, empathy meant being acutely aware and investigating difference. Empathy meant recognizing the other person had a distinct, different point of view, that they came from a whole other world, a whole other background, that their life and conditioning and culture may be very different from anything you've encountered. 
And so rather than trying to leapfrog that difference into the oneness of Alf, I can feel just what you're feeling, for Kohat, empathy meant the slow, meticulous investigation of that other person's point of view. And it meant really taking difference seriously and assuming that seeing from the other person's point of view was something that was the fruit of a long, um, difficult process. We, in, in our practice, we encounter the notions of non-separation or of oneness in lots of different guises. And we can be somewhat mystified by them in the sense of thinking that Yes, of course, that's the deep underlying truth about life. And if only I could uh, achieve that, everything would be all right. But it leaves us in a kind of muddle about what to do in the meantime. It also leaves us in a kind of... Um, helpless position in regard to those who claim to have uh, achieved such a state. And one of the problems um, with sort of the omniscient teacher model is that sense of, well, the teacher experiences everything from the point of view of non-separation uh, so how can someone who has not achieved that possibly argue with it, or how could they possibly be wrong? Now, there are actually sort of distinctly different versions of what oneness means in different traditions. And in the case of the, the guru, to say there are no others can mean slightly different things. And I don't know what he meant by it, but what kind of oneness do we think that is describing? It can be an erasure of all difference a sense of there is no separation between me and you or me and the world. But what does that actually consist of? How does that play out? As opposed to a vision of oneness that implies no difference, we can also have a vision of oneness uh, defined by interconnection or interdependency in which everything is different but occupies its place within the whole. 
there we often get the image of the one body. If we imagine that we are all part of one body, then the idea is that, of course, we all have our own different natures and functions. Oneness doesn't mean I'm the same as you at all. It means that our differences all add up or hang together to create a kind of functioning or harmonious whole that we might be unaware of. So in that model, you know, I'm a kidney and you're a spleen and because, and you know, we all work together to uh, allow the body to live and function. Now that metaphor of the one body can all itself go in a few different directions. Certainly, we can ask whether the body is healthy or sick. Perhaps we would say that um, when we all know that we're part of one body, we're going to function uh, in the service of, of the whole rather than terms of our each individual uh, self-interest. And there, the kind, that kind of functioning is something that ne needs to be achieved or could be improved upon or can go awry. But we can also have a picture of the one body that doesn't depend on our understanding at all. Um, you can see that, for instance, in um, such seemingly uh, different uh, characters as Walt Whitman and Adam Smith. Uh, Whitman, you know, celebrates the one body of life that is exuberant and vital and, you know, carrying uh, itself forward. Uh, regardless of whether we are aware of our participation in it. Everything is already blooming and flourishing, right? And uh, we are all leaves of grass in this great uh, bigger picture of life. Doing just what we do, we occupy that. And Adam Smith, not somebody you normally think of as cropping up on a lecture of oneness, but uh, his picture of the market was a picture of one body. He said that uh, everybody simply going about their own business, pursuing their self-interest as hard and best they can, just trying to make a profit for themselves, all of those people together add up and create a market. And it's the, the remarkable thing that uh, Smith proposed was that the sum of all these people desperately uh, seeking to outdo the other and be competitive added up inadvertently and unconsciously to this 
hole that we call the free market. And everybody doing their own thing creates one body. So that's a picture of, you know, the, the spleen just does what it's doing. The kidney just does what it's doing. They're completely oblivious to it, their role in the whole. Uh, but just because of who and what they are, they hang together. And you see that in, uh, well, I'm just going to say things like uh, Bucky Fuller's uh, constructions where he would have uh, arrangements of uh, sticks and wires in such a way that they fell away from each other into a hole that was held in place by the tension of each one falling uh, uh, as it would naturally. Uh, I forget his name of that, tense integrity or something like that. Anyway, um, we can say that the Walt Whitman, Adam Smith model of uh, the one body is a little bit like um, what we hear in the Sandokai, where it says, if you do not see the way, you do not see it even as you walk on it. The way is the one body that pre-exists our awareness of it. And our, whether we see it or not, we're already part of it, right? You can say that uh, a less seemingly mystical uh, perspective is something like, you know, emptiness and interdependence are how the world is, whether we see it or not. The way, it, it, you know, it's um, gravity doesn't depend on your knowing about it or not. It's the world is just going to operate that way, and you're part of that. The world is already constructed to be this whole, whether or not, and you have your part in it, whether or not you, you see it or not. But we could return to this issue of the one body and thinking about, is there a way for it to be healthier or sicker, depending on our awareness? That's a different kind of perspective of it. And it has something to do with how we think about relationships and what does it mean for them to go well or badly? Is there something we can do to make them go well? And what is it that we mean by them going well, right? See, one version of interconnectedness, uh, we could also use uh, Hegel's uh, maxim of, I can't be myself by myself. There it means that for me to be fully who I am, 
I need to be connected and plugged in uh, to others and or to a whole. Uh, in a certain sense, that means you don't see any kidneys walking around on their own, right? You don't uh, uh, find any uh, spleens just setting up shop uh, independent of uh, the rest of the body. Uh, to be a spleen is to be connected to a body, and you can't be a spleen unless you're part of something else. You, you wouldn't, it can't survive on its own. So that's one way of thinking about it. Another is, um, what does it mean to develop, you know, in an Aristotelian sense, our own virtues or capacities? You know, Aristotle said, to be fully human, to develop all our capacities, we need to be part of a, a society that you can't develop certain skills or capacities unless you're always interacting with and bumping up against other people and being given the opportunity to practice certain things. And you could say, you know, a, you know, an obvious kind of example like that is um, you can't uh, uh, learn to become a good parent unless you have children, right? It, parenting isn't a skill you can develop, you know, privately on your own, right? Parenting, however you think about it, is a sense of capacities that you learn and develop in the process of raising a child. And there we probably would say, yes, that's something you can do well or badly, right? Uh, from one point of view, you can say, once you have a child, you can't help but be a parent. You're put into this role and you will be parenting uh, regardless of what you do. Uh, you are simply thrown into that relation and you, can, uh, you can't uh, deny it or get rid of it or make it any more or less than it already is. It's simply a relation. Uh, but again, we can think, well, maybe that can be done well or badly. Now, some of this is a uh, roundabout way of introducing uh, Joko's uh, chapter we'll be discussing uh, later, uh, where she takes a... a, a a perspective on one dimension of relationship, which is all about um, sort of the frustration of our individual likes and dislikes. Uh, she says that um, everybody wants a relationship uh, to be a feather bed, something in which they'll be comfortable. And uh, the practice lesson is to realize that that's just crazy, that no one else can be our feather bed. 
And I believe she even uses the example of parenting and says, uh, uh, it's really a war <laughs> that you find yourself constantly at odds with the other, with the child. Uh, and so this is a very real dimension of uh, what we can bump into if we come to a relationship or parenting feeling completely separate, just wanting to get my needs met, just wanting for me to be comfortable, and the other person is seen exclusively in terms of uh, are they meeting or frustrating my expectation. Jessica Benjamin has written about the impasse that can arise between with a mother and a child when the experience is of their needs simply being in opposition. Uh, and that's the scenario where the mother feels that the child is simply draining all the life out of her. Uh, the mother feels totally exhausted and feels that the child is um, helpless but insatiable. And that uh, the, the child, if, if its insatiable needs are met, will be like a little vampire that drains the mother dry. Uh, whereas if the mother gets the sleep and rest that she needs and tries to have a life, uh, tries to have a relationship with her partner, tries, in other words, to have needs of her own, the baby will be uh, neglected. And uh, in worst case, the baby will die. And Jessica has called that uh, scenario, only one can live. The, it's a kind of unconscious fantasy that uh, I think is very easy to fall into that essentially describes something like what Joko is uh, portraying about relationships, that we simply are at odds with each other, that my, there's my expectations and your expectations, and either somebody totally submits and is unhappy or or we're just going to endlessly clash. Uh, so there's uh, this potential dysfunction around the notion of, uh, of, of separation of, of needs. Uh, Jessica Benjamin's work is about resolving that impasse around uh, uh, separation seen as opposition or competition, but it's not. It, it is not resolved through oneness. It's resolved through weeness, right? Which is very different. It's not a matter of the mother identifying totally with the baby. Uh, rather, it's the mother being able to see herself and the baby as part of a functioning whole, a we, that has, you could say has its own needs. Uh, 
the we needs the mother to get a certain amount of sleep. The we needs the baby to get a certain amount of milk. Those two things have to come to some kind of balance in order for the we to survive. Uh, it can be done well or it can be done badly. Uh, but it is a way in which uh, we achieve a kind of interconnection that isn't uh, based simply on non-separation. So I think I'll leave that there, and perhaps we can continue uh, that line of thinking when we discuss Joko's chapter.